1: I'm not hearing JL's chair today, though, so that's been... That's been <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everybody, and welcome to our show, Is It Serious?, a conversational podcast where we share our doctor knowledge without all the complex doctor talk. I'm Dr. Mark Lewis and I'm a medical oncologist based in Salt Lake City where I treat cancers of the gut. I'm also a patient myself living with a hereditary tumor syndrome. So I think about healthcare from both sides of the exam table.
2: And I'm Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune. My friends call me JL and I'm an internal medicine physician based in New York City where I practice addiction medicine at my company, Santra Modern Recovery. In addition to being a physician, I'm also a healthcare entrepreneur and investor and I'm passionate about making our healthcare system better for everyone.
1: So, before we get on topic today, we wanted to tell you about another great podcast in the Offscript Health Network called Beyond the Paper Gown.
2: That's right. Beyond the Paper Gown inspires and informs women about the latest information about their health and healthcare choices. Host Dr. Mitzi Krakover has a very thorough, multi-part series on self-advocacy. We did a similar episode on how to be your own best health advocate, and I really think that Beyond the Paper Gown's episodes are a great companion to ours.
1: Yeah, Dr. Crackover is very candid, and along with other medical
2: professionals, they really get into specific risk factors and screenings, as well as tips for prevention. So we recommend that you add Beyond the Paper Gown to your podcast list. We'll share the link in our show notes. So, Gio, how's it going, man? I'm good, man. Memorial Day was a nice break other than uh, a bunch of soccer tournaments and soccer games. Uh, it was uh, good to turn my brain off for a couple days. And it's really starting to feel like New York now. Uh, it was 90 degrees yesterday. It's hard to believe that this is the final episode of season one. I remember uh, the first planning meetings that we had when we were first introduced Ariel and Joey back in November of last year. It's hard to believe it's been that long.
1: Ah, yes, the glory days of our youth. What's that uh, gif with the old lady from Titanic? It's been 84
2: years. (laughs) No, honestly, man,
1: the time has flown by. It has been so much fun to talk to you. It's been great to get reaction
2: from our listeners. Uh, I'm already looking forward to next season. Absolutely. And for today, our question of the day, and I think a really great way to end the season, given that this was a topic of discussion throughout many of our episodes, is how do genetics and environment play a role in health?
1: Ah, uh, Yes, nature versus nurture. We are finally going to settle the debate on this podcast, game over. Everyone can go home. Nobel in the bag.
2: <laughs> I think you're overstating it a little bit. <laughs> I, I don't know if we're gonna. I don't know if we're gonna get that today. I mean, remember, this is literally one of the oldest debates in the social sciences. Famous scientists and philosophers like John Locke, Rene Descartes, Charles Darwin were heavily involved in these debates. Uh, and it's funny to think, like, when I was in college at Columbia, I read actually pieces by all three, and often these were the subject of uh, their writings.
1: It's like this collision, right, between uh, philosophy and and medicine. And I have to say, to pivot a little bit in tone, there's a real poignancy, JL, to this question uh, in oncology because it essentially boils down to why do bad things happen to good people? And, Mm -hmm. you know, I just, I, I personally, as a doctor, I have to be very careful not to moralize these catastrophic things that happen to our patients because everyone is prone to randomness. There's a scientific term for that, stochastic events, but actually I much prefer Shakespeare's version, which is the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or if we really want to boil it down, plain bad luck.
2: I'll tell you, throughout my, my medical career, I've always felt like, you know, there's so much that you can do to help people, but you can't account for bad luck. So that's definitely a thing that we can't control.
1: You know, one of the hardest questions I have to answer directly in my clinic is someone will look me right in the eye and they'll say, Dr. Lewis, why did this happen to me? And now all of a sudden, this isn't some sort of abstraction, like you like a conversation you and I are having. It's it's a plea for answers. They are desperately searching for something that makes sense.
2: And, and honestly, to, you know, some of the strongest memories that I have from residency, like specific moments that I can remember from my training are in the oncology service where, you know, you're meeting somebody who has just admitted the night before, you're giving them a new cancer diagnosis that's uh, been achieved through imaging or, or something else, and hearing or at least sensing from that patient, like, why me? Why did this happen to me? It's very, it's very strong and evocative of that time for me.
1: Right, because they start second-guessing like all of their choices up to that point and, and wondering what they could mm-hmm. have done differently. But I, I can tell you yep. there is sometimes literally nothing they could have done differently. So I also want to tell you about one of my favorite people, actually a fellow podcaster. Her name is Kate Bowler. I don't know if you've heard of her, jail, mm-hmm. but she is an amazing person. So she's a theologian at Duke. Um, she's also a survivor of stage four colon cancer. And she wow. wrote this fantastic book, again, from that sort of dual perspective, called Everything Happens for a Reason, and this is the beauty of the parentheses, and Other Lies I've Loved. <laughs> and she, her perspective is so interesting because basically she's able to maintain faith in a benevolent God, but also acknowledge that there's, there's chaos in the world that isn't easily uh, explained away. Mm-hmm. And I have another favorite author who I I really want to lean on as we explore this topic together. So he's uh, called Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee. He's actually right there in New York with you. Okay. He's a a brilliant, brilliant oncologist writer. Um, He he does clinical work and research at at Columbia. And his first book uh, was called The Emperor of All Maladies. And it was subtitled A Biography of Cancer. It was just that. It was just about oncology. But his second book widened the scope. It was called The Gene. So it wasn't just about cancer. It was about sort of human health as it's encoded in our DNA. And so this is the formula he came up with in that book. And it's what I quote back to my patients when they come to me and say, Dr. Lewis, why me? I say, whatever happens to us is the sum product of heredity. So yes, our genes, our environment, triggers, and chance. And and JL, I don't know how you feel. I think it's that last one that's so... Vexes people because obviously your heredity is determined by your your parents and generations before them, your environment and your triggers. I mean, you know, through lifestyle, uh, you might be able to alter those quite quite purposely. Although there's also social determinants of health we might discuss that people can't fix so mm-hmm. easily. And it, but it's the yep. chance part, and I almost feel like the healthy they can too easily feel virtuous. They can sort of feel like they deserve their good health because of the choices they've made. And this comes up a lot in cancer. There is a um, corner of of Twitter in particular with, and I have to commend them, very, very nutritionally minded people who adhere to very, very rigorous diets. And, And I applaud them for that. But what I don't like at all is when that shifts into blaming someone with cancer for either past or present dietary choices. Yep. Yes, we all control what we put in our mouth. But as we might discuss later, there's really, really deep sort of innate reasons that some people respond to food one way and others another. And I think that's where the lines start to get blurred around sort of personal responsibility and
2: disease. Let me comment a little further on chance and then talk about the analogy and addiction. You know, I think part of the human experience, you know, particularly since the start of the industrial revolution, right, modern times, I think, you know, human beings have increasingly come to control their environment, right, control the things around us, understand, you know, what happens to us and why. There's this notion that some people have that, you know, we understand everything and we understand how everything works. And I think one of the key things that we learn as doctors as we train is that actually, you know, we don't understand everything. (laughs) And, uh, you know, that Random chance things happen. And, uh, you know, you can't control for everything. But going back to the, uh, you know, the analogy to addiction, um, the modern definition of addiction is that addiction is a treatable chronic medical disease involving complex interactions among brain circuits, so the structure of the brain, genetics, the environment, and individual life experiences. And and you could probably throw in the chance there, too, Mm -hmm. because, you know, often for some people, their first drug experience that leads them down the road to addiction is a chance encounter with somebody that they have. And for the record, it's actually estimated that genetic factors account for 40 to 60 percent of someone's vulnerability to addiction. But the flip side to that is that adverse child experiences, you know, the social part of this, can dramatically increase someone's risk of developing an addiction. So even in uh, addiction medicine. There is a balance, a very clear balance between nurture, you know, sort of the experiences you have and nature, you know, the stuff, the information that you get from your parents and your ancestors.
1: That's so interesting. I, just as you were saying, I had a vivid flashback to medical school and I was remembering being in my psychiatry lectures and we actually had a, a faculty member who was convinced that there were certain genes whereby, you know, predisposition to alcohol abuse was so high, his exact quote was, that person should never drink a beer in college. And that really stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Just sort of this yeah. sort of setup for disaster, right? I actually think this is a great jumping off point for some discussion and maybe even just basic definitions of genetics and epigenetics. So genetics is literally talking here about the sequence of our DNA, and as we've mentioned before, my DNA is three billion letters long, and so is yours, and it's probably only a few letters difference between us that at least on sort of a code level, makes me, me, and you, you. It makes for an interesting show and not a monologue. But epigenetics is the study of how behavior and environment, so again, those two other factors in the Mukherjee formula, can cause changes that affect the way that your genes work. So it's almost like mm-hmm. you have the, the code, but then you have the manner in which that code is interpreted. That's the interplay that, like you were saying earlier, we, we need to have humility And admit that we're just in the infancy of figuring this out. It's funny, J.L., you know, often I look around at at modern technology and I think about all the advances. And then I come to my clinic and I am routinely humbled by just how complicated – and I mean that honestly – just how complicated Uh the human body is. I mean like part of the reason I think you and I are doing this show is that everybody – Possesses a body, but the way it actually works is such. This I mean, it's a beautiful mystery, but it's one that it's taking you know centuries of
2: medical progress to untangle. And it's funny that you mentioned you know being humbled uh, again. This is this is something I've tried to explain to many people in debates with non physicians. People are often will say, you know, that doctors are um, uh, dismiss what they have to say, right? We dismiss what they have to say because, uh, you know, we're being arrogant. Like, for instance, the whole issue with the EHR. Yep. But I think you hit the nail really on the head. It's it's being repeatedly humbled and humiliated by your lack of knowledge and your ability to control everything that really, I think, makes us doctors aware that, you know, there's, there's just a lot of things we don't know. And, uh, you know, the, the more you know, the the less you know.
1: That's the, the Dunning-Kruger effect, right, is that
2: absolutely um, you sure? Know,
1: you can have just the wrong amount of information and be completely convinced that you're an expert. But actually, you, when you find mm-hmm. the true, quote-unquote, masters of the subject, they're actually questioning sort of the boundaries of what they know. So let's talk about what we do know. So I'm going to go back to Mukherjee here. He has a really fantastic section in his book on twins because obviously if we're delving into this subject, right nature versus nurture, what better sort of group to think about than identical twins? So mm-hmm. he cites this really fascinating experiment jail, really sort of a data gathering where in the 1970s, a group of scientists in Minnesota they sought out identical twins who had been separated at birth. So now mm-hmm. things get really interesting because you've got people with the same DNA, but being raised in different environments. Sometimes they were in different families, other times they were in different states. And then what they found by studying these 56 clusters of identical twins is all the things that were similar, despite the fact that they may have even been separated by continents. And mm-hmm. Mukherjee's sort of beautiful writing here, he said, two brothers might be brought to tears by the same Chopin piece as if responding to some subtle common chord struck by their genomes. And I thought that was such a beautiful way of putting it. Even like our aesthetic experience, our taste might be shaped by our genes. And he went on to sort of talk about the link between like medical problems, like uh, one pair of twins suffered uh, migraines. Um, another, interestingly, uh, had a, a – Set of obsessive behaviors. And this is true, mm-hmm. where all of them had to flush the toilet before using it. Okay. So, again, this whole notion that yes, we
2: can control some of our behaviors,
1: but some of this is clearly imprinted in our genes.
2: Sure. And again, I mean, if you think that your behaviors are often a function of how your brain works, right? And the way I think about my brain is. My brain is just an organic computer, right? And it's an <laughs> organic computer that has a bunch of circuits in it, you know, and circuits that control for mood and circuits that control for language. And if you figure that, you know, there's probably some hereditability in terms of those structures of the brain, then it sort of makes sense, right? I mean, you know, like one, one of the things that I always noticed was interesting in my family. I, I have a sister, I don't have a twin, but what we discovered in our household, as, you know, as, as we discovered many things, is that the three of us, my sister, my my father and I all had a love for police shows, right? Ah. And you know, you know, again, it was the, a thing we sort of discovered independently because you know I was away at college when I discovered this, and you know, maybe there is there, there is something about the excitement of seeing a car chase or something that activated certain parts of our brain and was very self reinforcing. So again, I th- I think a lot of this comes down to not only maybe the circuits in the brain, but also even the receptors too, right? The and 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 I can definitely think about this from an addiction perspective. That the way your dopamine receptors are, your other receptors that control mood and other things, depending on the structure of a receptor and the way it functions that you inherit from a parent or another ancestor can dramatically impact your risk of being addicted. And again, you know, anybody who is genetically similar to you will probably bear those similar risks.
1: So I have to confess, I'm a tiny bit envious that you grew up with a sibling. (laughs) And I know this may sound like sort of grapes. so I'm an only child. Oh, okay. And so I've gone through life as an N of one, like I'm my own little Mm -hmm. weird experiment, and I am quite weird. (laughs) But my best friends growing up were identical twins. And I would actually pride myself that I was close enough to them, I could tell the difference, not just subtle visual things, but just their behavior. Which actually brings me to the other incredible observation from Mukherjee. So he actually spins the whole identical twin experiment on his head and says, what's interesting is not why they're the same, because we know that genetically they're same. Why are mm-hmm. identical twins different? And this is his answer, Jale, and I'd love to get your take on this. He says, fate impinges differently on their bodies. And I just think this gets really fascinating, especially when we start thinking about generational trauma. So back in the second world war, in the, the winter of 1944, German troops Sort of were causing starvation on a, on a mass scale in in Holland. Uh, in fact, it, it has a phrase in Dutch called the Hunger Winter. The, the Hunger Winter, where you know tens of thousands of people died of malnourishment, and the people who survived had essentially come right to the brink of starvation. So my mm-hmm. point bringing it up here is, when those people went on to have children, it, it turns out that the kids that had been born, or I should say even conceived during the famine they appeared to have higher rates of comorbidity as well. So that's everything from diabetes to uh, mental illness. And one theory was that the environment in which the children were growing in utero had been changed. So their genes were the same, but the environment Mm -hmm. was different. Uh, And this is really, really fascinating because – what it really was telling researchers is that some memory of metabolic stress could have become heritable. And and some of the same things start to appear in questions around, you know, you obviously work in the addiction space, whether or not addictions can be passed down, not just through genes, but through epigenetics.
2: Sure. And then, you know, there's, you know, epigenetics has been studied in, for instance, in Holocaust uh, populations. So populations that have survived the Holocaust and how that trauma is tracked down in terms of mood disorders and other things. I think that's a very interesting uh, correlation. Probably you could do the same thing for descendants of slavery uh, in the United States and how the slavery experience changed their epigenetics and how that led them to uh, express their genetic code. So I think there's a lot to be said for epigenetics and how human experiences and um, traumas can be transmitted down through generations.
1: And it's funny. So Mukushi. Mukherjee- gives the you know identical twin example then he talks about epigenetics and he actually has a basically a, a counterpoint to even that where he says that this is not a way to warp speed around heredity and the the two examples he gives are number one uh, you can't make your your children taller by by straining your neck harder which I thought was great mm.
2: that's Lamarckism right
1: <laughs> right exactly and then this is another other Fantastic quote. He said, 140 generations of circumcision have not abolished the need for the procedure. So I thought that was beautifully said and really pretty funny.
0: Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this.
1: Yes, there's the code in us that we obviously can't change, sort of, you know, gene editing. But then there's all these other influences, some of which we can control, um, and some of which we can't. And to be very honest with you, JL, there's a reason I take this a little bit personally, and I hope you don't mind me sort of sharing this with you and the listeners. So, not at all. I've recounted in a prior episode I have a genetic condition, so I feel this quite deeply inside of me. And the funny part was my case got written up in the New York Times. But, but the really interesting part was the readers of the New York Times sent in, wrote in suggestions for me about what I could do about my health. And remember, the whole point, the whole point of the article is I have a mutation. I have had this mutation basically <laughs> since I was conceived in utero. And this one guy, his name is Jim, wrote in from o- Oklahoma, and this is what he said. This is, this is a verbatim quote. Stop eating fake foods like bacon double cheeseburgers, french fries, and milkshakes – Eat more fresh salads with skinless chicken and no dressing, wash the salads down with green tea, you'll be just fine in a few <laughs> days. I was like, Are you kidding me, man? Like, did you read any of this? Do you understand what's going on here? But I think again, there's this notion that you can overcome anything with, you know, your diet or exercise, what have you, and I just don't think that's true.
2: You know, you shared Jim from Tulsa's quote, and there were a couple of others that uh, I saw there. Reading those quotes, you realize that a lot of people have very weird ideas about how medicine works, about, you know, how disease occurs. Uh, And it's interesting to actually read somebody, write out, you know, a paragraph or a couple of sentences where they demonstrate that, you know.
1: And obviously, he was giving extremely specific nutritional advice. It makes you think that that's sort of like what he's been doing, and maybe that's been working for mm-hmm. him. But this happens sure. all the time. Even it happens in my clinic, Jail, where I'll sometimes come out to the waiting room, and I'll see my patients talking. I, I love that sense of kinship in times of adversity. But then what I realize is sometimes they're comparing notes, and they're expecting one person's experience to be perfectly reproduced in another. And that's just not the way it works. There are all these variables Um, some of which we understand, some of which we don't. And what I think it boils down to for each person listening to this is sort of striking a balance between being responsible for your own health but also being kind to yourself, realizing that there is a locus of control inside of you. Like, for instance, I got up this morning. I exercised for 30 minutes. That was a choice I felt good about. But I still have this genetic condition that I can't be rid of. Mm -hmm. And so I think giving yourself grace when things go wrong with your health, like it's it's not always you that's to blame if you get ill. And I'm going to come very close to verging on your sort of addiction space, Jail. I'm going to invoke the <laughs> serenity prayer,
2: uh-huh.
1: which I think is pretty beautiful, actually. And I think it works in, in all kinds of settings, even outside of uh, AA. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom
2: to know the difference. And I think that's kind of what this whole conversation is about. And also, I think, baked into the serenity prayer, especially if you think about it from the standpoint of AA, a certain subset of people have a problem that they can't control, right? They have a problem with alcohol. And as going back to what we were saying earlier in this episode, for them, the first drink is a, a downward spiral to a compulsive use that leads to negative consequences. Again, one of the definitions of addiction. So it's almost interesting that it's built into that, the, the serenity prayer, this understanding that some people, because of their negative Nature, have something that they can't control and, uh, you know, need some support in, in getting there.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Just as you said that, I'm realizing not only are we asking people to give themselves grace, we're asking them not to be judgmental of other people. Like, you have no idea if you're placed in exactly the same circumstances how your health would turn out. And, you know, I invoked the phrase earlier, social determinants of health. There are all these factors, that determine how well or ill someone is. And and again, not all of it is something that they can change. A lot of it actually boils down to socioeconomic status and you mm-hmm. know poverty and, and just the, the really
2: almost inextricable linkage of poverty and illness. I would argue that in the last 20 years, we've really started to understand that better. You know, you can make the argument that, you know, prior, you know, earlier times, maybe when we were kids, there was a much stronger belief that the reason that people are poor is because, you know, their genetics are bad. But I think that there is an increasing understanding that environmental pollution can definitely impact people in a negative way. Not having access to good food, living in a food desert can negatively impact Mm -hmm. people and and I think... Physicians, you know, the public health community has started to respond to this and realize that, again, going back to what you were saying, that these social determinants of health are big drivers of why people have negative health outcomes. But the great thing is, unlike your genes, which are hard to change unless you have a CRISPR technology or some (laughs) other stuff that's uh, that's not available yet, you know, you can build a supermarket and give people access to healthy food. You can take the lead out of gasoline and help people live lead-free lives. So I think there's an understanding that, you know, the, the nurture part is important and is modifiable, and modifiable in a good way.
1: So two things there. You and I, before, tried to be transparent about what we put in the medical record. And we've talked about this phrase, the social history. So what that means is when you meet a patient, typically you only do this the first time, you're trying to learn about them. But you and I also both know the social history has essentially gotten reduced down to, do you smoke, do you drink, do you use drugs? When in fact, a, a complete social history, based on what you just said, is so much more than that or should be like where do you live who do you live with you know do you have a reliable source of income what is your what is your diet look like do you have regular access to food or is that is that food instability is that a concern for you these are all the things that frankly we would love to have time to flesh out with our patients and we seldom at least in general practice get that get that opportunity the mm-hmm. second thing i wanted to tell you this is sort of hot off the press Just this last week, there was a CRISPR experiment gone wrong at the University of Chicago that I actually used online as an example to people of why I'm not eager to use it on myself. So for (laughs) for years now, people have been like, Mark, you know the exact letters in your genetic code where you went wrong. And sometimes they say it more nicely than that, but that's what they mean. And they're like, Mm -hmm. why don't you just use CRISPR? Like it's just, you know, like getting out a pair of scissors and going through like (laughs) each one of my cells, right? So what happened with this experiment they took, I believe, hamsters, and they were okay. they were CRISPR editing them, and they were actually trying to make them, uh, I think, more social. And in fact, the opposite happened, where they became super mm-hmm. aggressive and started attacking one another. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously, the scientists had not foreseen that. And my takeaway from that is not just sort of, sort of silly observation. It's the truth that we don't fully understand yet what manipulating our genes, what the outcome can be. There, there's another thing I wanted to bring up, too, which is gratitude when things go right. So... If the serenity prayer is about sort of self-forgiveness, I've learned to be more thankful for when my health is good. I I literally came from the funeral of a young father I just lost in my practice, and it's Mm. so fresh in my mind. He's almost exactly my age. He had a pancreatic cancer, and now Mm. you know he was just buried this afternoon. And seeing that is always a reminder to me how, how lucky I am, and I think it's important to remember that too.
2: Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I I think, again, one of the things that comes out of the physician training experience is being able to understand, you know, how fortunate we are. Right. And to be uh, the fortune, the good fortune that we have to have been able to get through the training and to be able to help people on a day to day basis. Yeah, that's so well said.
1: So as I've done in prior pods, I'd be remiss not to quote my dad here. Um, And again, this nature versus nurture thing, uh, I can't help but think of him too. You know, in an earlier episode about my family, I I detailed, and this is heartbreaking for me, that he went to his grave not knowing that he had a genetic condition underlying his own cancer. He he didn't know that, and and nor did anyone before me. I was the first one in my family to figure that out. So he he had no idea this was in his genes, and yet this was his take. And I'm just going to read it to you, Joe. He actually wrote this very close to dying. The question, why me, is just too myopic. Much more realistic is the question, why not me? Why should I be exempt from the floods and famines, accidents and disasters that bedevil my brothers and sisters? By what extravagant mercy have I so far survived that to which so many others tragically succumb? For my dad to say that, I just thought was so selfless of him. And again, there's some appropriate level in this whole take of finding the right balance in yourself between, yes, taking responsibility for your health, but also giving yourself grace and being grateful when you are well. I think that that's sort of the the chemistry. Those are the the components we're trying to put together for a, a take on this that's emotionally healthy
2: and i think you know a really a perfect summation of our view of our first season right our goal to be able to help people achieve great health um and uh, you know live their best lives and i think we we've added a lot to that this season and and again your the quote from your dad as i said as i've said before is written with an eloquence that you could only get from a theologian so uh, it's been, i think a great a great quote to close with
1: Thank you so much, Jale. And again, my my father never sent an email, so he couldn't have envisioned his son being on a podcast with you. But <laughs> I, I just wanted to say it has been it's been a joy. Uh, I can't believe this is the last episode of our first season. And I want to say thank you to our wonderful team at Offscript, founders Matt and Andrew, our producers Joey and Ariel, and to our listeners. I've had so many kind messages from people both strangers, but also from peers who I hadn't heard from in years. It's been like a little mini high school reunion for me. And it's just a really neat way of realizing
2: our audience. And uh, we are super excited to
1: um, keep going with this.
2: And we'd be negligent if we didn't thank our writer and our intern, Emma Gomets, who uh, was a big part of our first season and uh, was a huge contributor to what we did this season. So Emma, thank you. Ariel, thank you. Joey, thank you. Uh, Matt and Andrew, thank you for the opportunity.
1: You're right to thank Emma J.L., because as you and I both know, she's going to be our boss in a couple of years. So she's, she's <laughs> amazing. So, again, to our audience, we just want to reassure you we'll be back soon with all new
2: episodes. And make sure that you subscribe so you don't miss the kickoff of Season 2. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to cover or if you have a question, you can email us at... Is it serious at offscript.com, offscript with no T, or call Offscript Health and leave a message. We might just use your question on the show. Our number is 855 AUDIO66. That's 855 283 4666. You can also find me on Twitter at Mark And my Twitter handle is at Jean-Luc Neptune. You can also find me on LinkedIn. And please remember that while we love talking about medicine and healthcare, this show doesn't provide medical advice. If you have any questions, make sure you ask your doctor. And take care, everybody. And please
1: join us next season for Is It Serious?
3: That's all for now. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all of your friends to listen. Do you have a medical question or concern? Ask us by leaving a message at 855 AUDIO 66 That's 855-283-4666. Or you can email us at isitserious at offscript.com. And we might just use your question in a future show. Is It Serious is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producers are Joey Brenneman and Ariel Nachman. Our hosts are Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune and Dr. Mark Lewis. Our researcher is Emma Gomez, and our sound mixer is Kyle Moore. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.